0: The city of London is packed with historic buildings and sites that are icons of Western civilization. But times change, and today's London has come up with some clever nicknames for the latest additions to its skyline.
1: The newest ones are the Cheese Grater and the Walkie Talkie.
0: -talkie. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll get an update on how you can get the most out of London. And we'll cruise to the Baltic to take in the sights of St. Petersburg, home to Tsar Peter the Great's magnificent Hermitage Museum.
2: And once you enter in the lobby and you see the staircase, your jaw drops. It's something magical. We'll also take a break from city life to visit the rural villages
0: of Turkey, where sightseeing takes on a whole new meaning.
3: There won't be an attraction in the village such as a museum or a site, but the attraction will be you, an American, walking through the streets of the village.
0: Come along as we get better acquainted with rural Turkey, London, and St. Petersburg in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. When Russian Tsar Peter the Great decided to build himself a new capital city in 1703, he started from scratch. The result is the city of St. Petersburg. It's Russia's cultural center and home to some stunning sights that we'll explore in just a bit. We'll also dally for a while in a quieter setting, rural Turkey where tourists are as rare as rush-hour road rage. But let's start off in a more hectic scene, London. Since the days of the Roman Empire, London's been a bustling hub of business and culture on the banks of the Thames. Today, tourists flock there to take in its history and classic sights. But in a city as exciting as this, things don't stay the same for long. I'm joined now by three expert guides to London, Tom Hooper, Gillian Chadwick, and Roy Nichols, and they're going to update us on what's new in this very old city and help us focus on what to enjoy and even what to avoid on your next visit to London. Tom, Gillian, and Roy, welcome. Pleasure to be here. Hello there. So the big news is the Olympics. Uh, You guys survived the Olympics. (laughs) I was impressed before the Olympics how England was learning from other countries who had had big investments and vast unusable spaces and big debts as a heritage. Mm. How has London done the Olympics from a long-term investment point of view?
1: A huge amount of thought went into the legacy of the Olympics before the Games themselves. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing now is they're developing the perimeter of the park with living accommodation. Mm -hmm. All of the sports venues will be available, not just for big events, but for schools, the uh, stadium will have school sports in it, which is quite remarkable, plus concerts as well. And the location itself
0: for the Olympics was interesting to me. You didn't choose a nice place. You didn't choose a beautiful place. You chose a very rough and relatively mm. poor working-class town, yep. Stratford, not to be confused with Stratford-upon-Avon, no. which is a cute town in the countryside where everybody sees Shakespeare, but a suburb of London called yep. Stratford. Why did London choose a rundown, dangerous community with no
4: good infrastructure, Tom? Well, one thing it did have was, as it happens, hugely good transport links. Oh, it did. Before. It did have that no partly problem. through the historical legacy of um, railworks there, mm-hmm. but part of the site was deliberately chosen because it was toxic, mm-hmm. and only a project of this size could ever have brought that land back into use, with all the soil having to be washed to get rid of the. So that toxic, was a big you know, investment. Big investment. Um, There was a lot of emphasis on making sure that everything was sustainable. So there's a lot of emphasis on taking waste and deliveries, but to the site being through things like trains and through even using the canals. And all of the buildings constructed for the Olympics could be uh, economically retrofitted
0: to have a value for the community long after the Olympics. Absolutely, yeah. The athletes' quarters turned into affordable housing the uh, venues turned into places we use today.
1: And the park itself, there's going to be double the amount of yes. greenery in the park than there was during the games, and that was one of the features that people love the mm. most, how much mm. green and and flowers and meadows.
5: So, all in all, Roy Nichols, has it been a good thing for Britain? Oh, I think it has. I mean, it's brought an incredible amount of visitors into Britain, raise the profile of Britain, and that really has a knock-on effect for over the next few years. Well, congratulations. Oh, no,
0: now, the next thing that's going on when I go to London is the ever-changing skyline. I thought I knew yes. the skyline, and all of a sudden there's this funny-looking like a cucumber or something sticking up. What, what is that, Roy? <laughs> <laughs>
1: The gherkin,
4: the gherkin, the gherkin. Some
0: gherkin. Some or does the sort
1: French call it the? Oh, it's actually called the
4: gherkin. The gherkin. There are there uh, are other names, as Gillian says.
0: The, <laughs>
5: f- the French <laughs> way I cut Roy by surprise. Can we say that? Let's call it a big cucumber, okay, Roy? <laughs> uh, the first thing that came to mind is not repeatable, on <laughs> <laughs> but, but you've got this big new building, and it does is the
0: British. well. It's, it's,
1: it's that's not new anymore. Uh, it's not
5: new anymore. Right. It's been up quite a few years. That's
0: past yeah, it, it's know. old hat. It's old hat. And what is what is that building?
1: The latest one is the Shard. That's complete, which is is the tallest building. But the newest ones are the cheese grater... And the walkie-talkie. walkie-talkie. So yeah. wait a minute.
0: So I knew the gherkin, which is old news, but yeah. to me, it it wasn't there when Christopher Wren was doing stuff. No. <laughs> and you've got <laughs> you've got the cucumber, you have got the cheese grater, you got the walkie-talkie, and the shard. The yes. shard. Yeah. This is so. Some, something people like...
1: think it's not finished, don't they? <laughs>
0: yes. So what are these things? What's the walkie-talkie, Tom?
4: Well, the walkie-talkie, like many of them, are going to be office blocks. But one of the amazing things about it, these does things... does it look like a walkie-talkie? It, it looks like um, narrow at the top, wide at the t- um, <laughs> narrow at the, the bottom. Uh, narrow at the bottom, wide yeah. at the top. Top. so it looks like a walkie-talkie. The thing is, with that development is, you have to give some public space when you do it. Well, is that part of the deal? That's part yeah. of the deal, and they've done it at the top. Oh. So they're creating one of the biggest indoor conservatories. Nice. it
1: to be the like the Hanging it, Gardens of Babylon.
4: It it's a beautiful thing, but it's probably
0: smart
5: development too
1: because oh, you is. only got
0: so
5: much footprint
1: yes. yeah. and you do, yeah.
5: you do your civic duty yeah. by sticking the public area on yeah. top. And, and yeah. it, it is, all of those are controversial in some way, but I, is it not the walkie-talkie where they've had all the problems over the concentration? The reflection. Well, it's not, the
4: reflection. Yes, yes. They've, they have these windows which just happen to reflect sun and a jaguar parked down in the street below. And was Just melted. It melted it, Melt. yeah. <laughs> it, It did a magnifying glass kind of
0: reflection on the Jaguar. All, yeah. Melted ah. all the rubber yeah. on
6: it.
4: Oh, no. Fire has always been important in the history of London, yeah. so, you know. There you go. What's the cheese grater? <laughs> Cheese It's offices as well, isn't it? It it, it looks like a a cheese grater. (laughs) So one side is angled.
1: It's to protect the views of St. Paul's from the east. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about,
0: because I love when I'm in the city being able to see the elegant, stately old steeples of Christopher Wren and the Dome of St. Paul's. Mm -hmm. And how effectively are they enforcing these uh, laws that protect various lines of sight?
1: Quite strictly Strictly, now, much more. So Mm -hmm. In fact, they've just demolished a building right next to St. Paul's. Mm -hmm. Because that is an ugly building and they want to replace it with something more sympathetic.
0: Bravo Britain. Now, um, if you're a sightseer, of all these buildings, of course, we can look at them and we can marvel at them and we can give them goofy nicknames. Is there anything actually to do from a sightseeing point of view? Can you go up these buildings? Well, you will
4: be able to go up the conservatory. They're already marking it by saying Mm -hmm. uh, the view is for everybody. And which one is that? And that's the walkie-talkie. You can can scale the walkie-talkie. You can pay to go up to the shard viewing deck and what is the shard? Uh, um, the shard is a. It looks like shards of glass. Yeah. Oh, okay.
1: People think it's not finished. Yes, don't they do. They.
0: Now uh, these are buildings that I'm sure are controversial that's when right. they're new. But in your estimate, ten years from now, will people go? Yes, that's part of our skyline. It's yes, correct. Yeah, they will. Definitely, I think so. That's yes. what we do.
1: There's one really useful one to know about. It's a shopping centre right opposite St mm-hmm. Paul's. You can go up onto the sixth, sixth floor. floor and you have the most fantastic a views. A shopping
0: center. Everybody goes to St. Paul's, so there's a high-rise yeah. shopping center yeah. and cool. great views from it has the sixth floor. the best
1: floor. view of the dome you could nice. possibly have, and yeah. it's free.
0: It's called One New Change. Yeah. One New Change. change. Mm-hmm. That's the address? That's yeah. the address. And, the street is New and Change. Ju- and
4: Just you yeah. know, just be confident, walk in, catch the lift, as you would say, elevator to the sixth floor, and, and you get this, as Gillian says. Nice fabulous. advice.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're getting an update on what's new in London. Our guests are Blue Badge Guides Tom Hooper, Gillian Chadwick, and Roy Nichols. Something very exciting about London is the development of the East End. And I was looking at the, the tube map, and if, you know we know the circle line and, and all the tangle of, of uh, subway lines, or as you would say, uh, tube. Uh, tube lines in London. And it's like there's a parallel network of these that's emerging, just growing right out of the urban soil. Mm-hmm to the east in the Docklands. And 150 years ago, this was the mightiest dock in, in all the world, I believe, and then yes. it was run down, and now it's seen as land that can be invested in. Absolutely, And yeah. all the uh, big corporations and so on are there. It's a great chance to feel the nine-to-five energy. As a site here, as a tourist, what should we know about the east end, the, the Docklands?
1: Well, the royal docks are being taken over, practically. China have invested one billion yes. pounds to make a, a big business center specifically for Asian companies. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So that's really having a big effect. Physically,
0: it is like Manhattan. It's just a forest yeah. of skyscrapers. Yeah,
1: this, yeah this, and there's th- the cable car as well. The, the
4: city has sort of shifted
1: yep. to, to the east, really.
4: really. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I and
0: noticed there's a very good connection from Westminster right to the Docklands. Yes. Yep. Yeah, Jubilee and, Line. And, and this makes sense because mm. you got all your important people in Westminster area near the government yep. and everything, and they can zip right out there. Yeah, that's exactly mm-hmm. right. And, they,
4: and the other then, thing is the Docklands Light Railway, which was developed in tandem I guess
0: my point is this is the Manhattan of London it's easy to get there by the Docklands yes. Elevated Railway yeah. or by the Met and that's a good tube. way to
4: see it as well because you go through the area and you can see it yeah. as you go through it Jellian
0: you mentioned the cable car what is that?
1: Uh, it's not really a cable car actually it's a gondola that goes across the River Thames a gondola
0: going huh. across the River Thames yeah
1: but in the air not, yes. not yeah. the Venetian yes. one right. <laughs> <laughs> like,
0: like a Swiss ski resort gondola. yeah that's right yeah. Yeah. People instead rowing rowing of Venetian gondola the air, yes. <laughs> This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Tom Hooper, Gillian Chadwick, and Roy Nichols about what's new in London. Just to wrap things up, Tom, Gillian, and Roy, uh, one last tip about some sightseeing thrill. That's uh, news. Tom Hooper.
4: Well, the news for me is come to London to the Pompeii of the North. Pompeii of the North. Yes, which is um, named because there's a site which Bloomberg's are developing. The Bloomberg, the, Mayor Medi- of new the York. media group, yeah, they've... Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, And they have found over 10,000 artifacts, particularly from Roman times. And it's preserved because the river that once flowed through it called the Warbrook has made sure there's no oxygen, so even the timber structures. Wow! Are so displayed. this is Bloomberg Money that's helping this yeah. big site that's now
0: the, digging up stuff from ancient Roman times. Yeah. Yeah. It, knew, the, the, the nickname is Pompeii of the North. What's the real name?
4: Well, it it is the Bloomberg the site. It's the Warbrook, Bloomberg site. Wallbrook.
0: All right. The river. Gillian Chadwick. What's new in London for you?
1: Anyone who's a fan of Shakespeare will go to the Globe Theatre in the summertime and see an outdoor performance. They've now got a new indoor theatre named after Inigo Jones, not Indigo, as uh, sometimes people mistakenly okay. think. So a new theatre in London to see Shakespeare's plays. Royal
0: Shakespeare Company or just uh, Shakespeare? No, it's not the Royal Shakespeare right. Company. OK. A new dimension
1: it's to the Globe It's part of theater, the Globe, so. So. An yeah. additional bit to yeah.
5: it. And Roy, what would you remind well, people to see? M- well, my favourite would be, and my suggestion would be to go and see the Cutty Sark, that great tea clipper of the 19th century, which went oh. through a disastrous fire a couple of years ago, has gone through a huge amount of restoration, and is still and is now one of the great clipper ship. The great clipper ship before the age, just before the steam engine. Yeah, the the, 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 the very fast ships that would go out to China and bring yeah. back the tea as quick oh. as they could to get the very best prices. And they nice. they are the finest example of square rigged sailing ships uh, from the nineteenth century. When and it they've, they've restored it after that terrible fire. And that's indeed, in, yeah. it's in Greenwich. In open Greenwich, public, in dry
0: dock, in Greenwich, just down the Thames from London. Roy and Gillian and Tom, thank you so much for getting us up to date on London. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Remember that a bank is a quiet and decorous place, so we must be on our best behavior. But I thought it was your bank. Yes, well, I'm one of the younger officers, so in a sense it is, sort of.
7: Michael, look.
2: It's her. Who? It's who? The bird woman, just where Mary Poppins said she would be. You do see her, don't you, Father? Well, of
0: course I can see her. Do you think I can't see past the end of my nose?
2: Listen, Father,
1: she's saying it. Feed the birds. Tump the so
0: birds. Well, of course she's saying it. What else would she be saying? Cruise ship passengers are setting sail for the Baltics, and I've found it's an interesting way to explore St. Petersburg in Russia. We'll get tips for cruising into Russia in just a bit. First, let's take a break from big city sightseeing and spend some time out in the countryside with a look at village life in Turkey. That's up next on Travel with Rick Steves. Turkey, as in other countries, the big, famous sites are found mostly in the big cities, like Istanbul, and you should visit those cities and check out those sites. But I've found that if you want to really experience the heart and soul of a country, you need to get out into the countryside as well, where things change more slowly and where tourists are all the more welcome, in part because they're so rare. Turkish tour guide Lali Sermon-Iran lives in the hectic metropolis of Istanbul, but she also enjoys spending time in village Turkey. That's where life moves at a very different pace. Lolly's here now to give us some tips on how we can do the same. Lolly, thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank you, Rick. I remember a long time ago traveling through Turkey, and the highlights for me were were getting to little towns where when I got off of the bus, everybody in the bus said, no, 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 don't get off here. Nobody gets off here. And I wanted to get off there, and I wanted to see the little village. I remember the industry, I, I used to nickname it Hay, dung, and ducks. All of the industry seemed like hay that was being gathered, dung, dried cow pies, really, for fuel, and ducks running around. Is there still a chance to get into very rural, very simple village life in Turkey today?
3: Of course, things are changing everywhere, such as in Turkey, too. At the moment, 70% of Turkish population are urban dwellers, but it doesn't mean that we don't have little wonderful villages here and there still carrying on their traditional lifestyles and traditional daily life. And yes, there are places like that you can go out. They're obviously off the beaten path, not places that regular tours would be going. You have to do a little research before, ahead of time.
0: But these poor villagers likely do not have a car and they use public transportation, so small buses would go to these towns from medium-sized cities?
3: Yes, Dolmuşes operate. Dolmuşes. Dolmuşes. And what is a Dolmuş? Dolmuş is a morph between a taxi and a shared bus.
0: So it will be a minibus that goes generally to a village and yes. it'll stop and go where people like it to stop and go.
3: Yes, and they usually operate from the Otogar bus terminal of the nearest bigger town.
0: Okay, so you're in a, you're in a regional capital, you know, a small city, 20, 30, 40,000 people. There would be the Otogar, the bus station you got the big buses going to Ankara and Istanbul.
3: And the minibuses to the villages.
0: I gotcha. Okay, now why would a tourist want to go to the trouble of going to a village? What are some of the rewards of getting into a village that has absolutely no tourist industry?
3: They are great. To start with, you will get to see the real people in their daily routine. And while they appreciate seeing visitors, their livelihood is not the visitors, so they treat the visitors as a personal visitor coming in not a tourist that's planning to spend on money.
0: Is that part of the culture? What, what is the traditional Turkish or, or Muslim uh, approach to a visitor walking into your village?
3: We say these guests are sent from God.
0: Is that right? Yes. Wow. Say that in in Turkish. Allah misafir. So this person who stumbles into our village is really sent by God. So take good care of him. Yes, exactly. So what is a fun thing to do in a village? Take just your image. You're you're with me in a little village. What would we do as just, because there's no museum and there's, there's no great palace to see. What would we do to have some fun and make some memories?
3: I would first recommend that you take a walk around the village to get an idea of the size of it and the people in it. And yes, there won't be an attraction in the village such as a museum or a site, but the attraction will be you, an American, walking through the streets of the village.
0: And what would I say? So, I I mean, people are going to be staring at me. I might be kind of self-conscious. Say
3: hello in Turkish, merhaba.
0: Just smile and and nod and say merhaba.
3: Yes, be down to earth and uh, be nice. And people are very welcoming and hospitable. If they see you, that you have a smiling face and if you want to reach out to them, they'll reach back out to you. Just take a little walk in the village and then go to the village center. In the village center, in every village center, there would be a grocery, there would be a pharmacy, there would be the uh, town hall, the local town hall, and the coffee shop.
0: And what would I do in the coffee shop? There's a good chance.
3: That's where people hang out,
0: Mm -hmm.
3: especially after a long day at the field in their gardens. Go in there, just check in, order a Turkish tea, such as everyone else is doing. It's the ritual. The tea will be served to you in a tulip-shaped glass cup. And start staring at people, and they'll be staring back at you too. And if you see any playing a backgammon game or a tile game, show some interest, and then they'll invite you.
0: They will. They'll just, then, it's automatic almost. They will invite automa- you to join the party.
3: Yes, and it's automatic from there on.
0: How do you say uh, backgammon in Turkish? Tavla. Tavla. So if I looked at a, a friendly uh, a man who was staring at me and, and curious and I said, Merhaba, and then I said, Tavla, would he might get a and play mitabla Yes, me tabla? <laughs> immediately. Is that immediately,
1: right? Immediately,
3: uh-huh. but you need to uh, remember the trick. Whoever loses buys the tea.
0: Okay, and a, tea, a cup of tea probably costs in American uh, how much?
3: In, in such a small village, 50 cents.
0: 50 cents, so mm-hmm. you've got to be able to buy everybody a cup of tea and you'll have a memory for the rest of yes, your life. Yes, exactly. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and each week on Travel with Rick Steves, we help you explore the world thoughtfully and get an idea of the fascinating people we can all get to know. Joining us right now is Lolly Sermon Aran from Istanbul, and we're talking about getting into village life in Turkey. Our phone number is 877 333 7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Mike's calling in from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Mike, thanks for your call. Hi. Hey, do you have a comment or question for Lolly about village life in Turkey?
8: About four years ago, I traveled to Istanbul and Ankara and Ephesus. And uh, it was a life-changing thing for me. Everyone was very friendly. Um, my background is that I'm Armenian, and my parents were born in Ankara and in Van. And I was very nervous about my first trip and found the Turkish people to be very warm and friendly. And I was just wondering, uh, I'd really love to visit the eastern side of Turkey Is there an issue uh, with me being Armenian?
0: Well, of course, uh, for our listeners that that might not be aware of this, the the Armenians and the Turks had a very difficult uh, period in their history 100 years ago, and a lot of people are still angry on both sides about this problem. uh, You know, people use the word genocide and so on. It's a a horrific thing any way you spin it. And then Armenians uh, have a heritage, and they want to go back. And there's a lot of Armenian Turks that are uh, woven into the the contemporary uh, society today in Turkey. And there's a lot of people that still have a problem. Lolly. for an Armenian-American to go back to Turkey, what concerns should they have?
3: As a matter of fact, none. Mike, I am partly an Armenian, too. That's my heritage. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm not the only one, obviously, in Turkey yeah. to have an Armenian heritage. There are hundreds of thousands of people like I am. And events that occurred during the World War One or afterwards... Are obviously very sad, very tragic events. But those of us in Turkey, we moved on and we accepted the events as they were. And um, as long as you do not, you do not carry a political statement with you,
7: mm-hmm.
3: you will yeah. be just you will be just yeah. any visitor in Turkey. Okay. And I have helped over the years. I have helped many American Armenians to travel to Turkey and find their family lineage. I helped them find their family homes and helped them travel to little nooks and crannies in Turkey. And they all returned back from Turkey with wonderful memories. And
0: there are beautiful and evocative Armenian sites in eastern Turkey. Yes, there are. And uh, Mm -hmm. I think uh, most of the Armenian culture and, and, uh, well, today there's a country called Armenia, which is, is over the border. Is the border open between Armenia and Turkey? No, it's not. So you can't get back and forth. And sadly, a lot of these Armenian sites today feel like ghost towns and, and they're, they're Some the of them are re- them.
3: recently restored, Rick. Especially, are they? Okay. yes. A very important church in Lake Van has been recently restored. Oh, that's beautiful. But the, but, yes, the, but, beautiful. The, but the
0: living culture is in Armenia north of the border, really. And these yes. are historic sites. Yes. And, and I just think, you know, I respect an Armenian who has, wouldn't even want to go to Turkey. I mean, that's up to them. But if you are an Armenian that wants to go back to Turkey, and as Lolly said, if you don't have a political axe to grind, you will find a, a warm welcome and absolutely no danger or concern about traveling through Turkey.
8: Well, well I great. found Istanbul to be really quite wonderful, and That's everybody great. was very, very friendly. And most of the Armenian I know is actually Turkish. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> good. Hey, well, Mike, have a, I, I'll tell you, I have some of my very favorite travel memories anywhere are in uh, eastern Turkey looking at those Armenian sites. So good luck. Uh, I would recommend f- for you to go for them. All
8: right. Well, I'm looking forward to trying it.
0: Thanks for your call, Mike.
8: Uh-huh, bye.
3: Bye.
0: And Gloria's emailed us from Bethel Park in Pennsylvania, and, and Gloria writes, I'd like information on a one-day cooking class in a Turkish village. Also, what are some of the most charming villages? Lolly, well, if you wanted to learn how to cook, would you take a class or would you just meet a, a woman in a household?
3: In Istanbul, there is a small group of housewives who can speak English and teach what they are cooking. And uh, what they do is that they usually meet with their guests in or around the spice market, so they start the day with shopping different so these spices. So cooking in-
0: tours in Istanbul, then?
3: I wouldn't call them tours. They are done on a private basis.
0: Okay, privately. so you, you, you hire the, the local cooking mm. guide. Yes. They take you to the market shopping, and then?
3: They teach you about the ingredients, the main ingredients, the side ingredients. You shop for what you will cook for the day, and then you move on to the house together using public transportation. Now and that, with, that, with what you have in your shopping bag, you cook the meal, and then you eat the meal.
0: That sounds great in Istanbul. If we're in the far corner of Turkey where people are not likely to speak English and you're in a village with a thriving market you might have a challenge but you could still witness how people are shopping and and how they're eating. What would be some advice for somebody who likes Turkish food and they're in a village? How might you learn about the cuisine or even uh, get a chance to do some cooking? It
3: needs to be a little bit more organized with more people involved, at least somebody to translate. Yeah. Because majority of the village women wouldn't yeah. be talking English.
0: So realistically, you'd need to hire a, a, a yes. guide, a, yes. a, a, an English-speaking guide from yes. a big city, and there's lots of good Turkish guides yes. looking for work, mm-hmm. and they could take you out into the villages, and I can think of, uh, if you'd like to cook, and if you like Turkish food, boy, to, to hire a guide for just a day in a big city, and go out into the countryside, into a village, and see the market, and uh, meet people, and... The way Turkish hospitality is, it's not that tough to get invited into people's homes.
3: No, that's very easy. We so, like guests very much.
0: We're learning how to make new friends in the Turkish countryside now on Travel with Rick Steves with Lolly Sermon Iran. Our phone number is 877 333 7425. And Sally's on the line right now from Lavelle in Pennsylvania.
9: Thank you, Rick. I'm a single woman traveler and I really love traveling solo. I've wanted to go to Turkey for some years now and. Recently, uh, an opportunity came to visit in or travel in the eastern Turkey area of small remote villages. You know, some may not have even seen many or any tourists, and I was wondering, I tend to be very open-hearted and smile on my face, and I tend to draw a lot of um, warmth from local populations when I travel, so... Uh, I have several questions. One is, how would that be for me, traveling as a solo woman in a remote village in eastern Turkey?
3: Talking of different parts of Turkey, the information I can give you are different. If we're specifically talking about eastern Turkey, that's one part of the country where you would not see many single women traveling alone.
0: And it might be misunderstood. People... And it
3: might be misunderstood. In other and, words, it
0: would be not wise for a single woman to travel alone in eastern Turkey, especially not speaking the language.
3: Yes, and you will attract too much attention, too much curiosity, and it might be uncomforting to a level.
0: Now, I've traveled with women in eastern Turkey in the most remote corners, and it was a beautiful partnership. A man and a woman traveling together you know mm-hmm. the the woman attracts a lot a lot more fun and attention than the guy will sometimes, and together it can be safe and it becomes quite a festival. People would invite him into the, into their homes and and we'd have all sorts of uh, chances to hop on ox carts and go for little rides and play games with the kids and slice up a water uh, a honeydew melon and there's so much fun you can have, but a woman alone, I think is a little risky
9: and is that the case throughout Turkey, or where would you feel safe if anywhere, as a woman
3: alone? Except for eastern and southeastern Turkey, I would save everywhere else as a single woman.
0: You're okay.
9: Yes. And now, do you define eastern Turkey as east of Ankara?
3: East of Cappadocia. Okay. Because
0: there's a lot of tourists as far as Cappadocia, relatively speaking, but when you Mm -hmm. get farther east than Cappadocia, then you become an adventurer. There's really not so much Mm -hmm. organized tourism beyond a few uh, adventurous tour buses.
9: I had encountered an opportunity to house care for someone in a remote village that direction. And so I just was a little curious. And whether what's that's... the village? Oh, I have to look it up. It was about two hours almost directly east of Ankara and north of Cappadocia.
0: Sally, it is exciting to think that uh, you could get into these villages, but it's, it's just a lot more comfortable if you have a guide or a man with you.
9: And the other thing was, I'm wondering with Syria positioned as it is, and Turkey being uh, on the way from the Middle East to Syria, does that raise any concerns at this point in time for traveling in Turkey
3: at large? No, not at all. Syria is a different country.
0: Yeah, the the distances are huge there. I think Turkey is the size of California, and there's oftentimes uh, disturbances over the border in, in a number of different directions, And you wouldn't want to wander off in areas near borders. I've been traveling, filming uh, near borders and in contested areas, and we get stopped a lot by military police, and they wonder what the heck we're doing there. But uh, if you're just roaming around the countryside as a normal tourist, you should be fine, but steer clear of the borders if there's something going on on the other side. But the Syrian conflict really should have no impact on what's going on for travelers in Turkey. So, Sally, thanks for your call.
9: Thank you. Yep.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been joined by Lolly Sermon Aran. We're talking about the traveler venturing into Turkish villages. Lolly, let's cap our conversation with just some advice from you on, on what might be sort of the the perfect opportunity in a village. What, what would make the village experience just really, really uh, memorable?
3: Social interaction. Especially in the religious and national holidays, people don't even close their doors. It's the time to visit one another, there's always food wherever you go. You visit one house and then you visit the next house and then you visit the other house. And meanwhile, everyone else is also visiting one another. There's always a commotion at every house, people coming in and going out. You get to see the people that you have not for a while seen. Talk about everything. It's when men, women and children. Everybody participates in this. They are usually in their best attire. Gifts are given. it Desserts are offered, tea is offered, and that's the time I love to be in a village.
0: And if there's a thousand Turks during a special festivity day in a village and there's two Americans strolling down the main street...
3: Just knock on the doors and keep visiting homes.
0: (laughs) You're just the celebrity in the town and you're more than welcome. As a
3: matter of fact, there won't be even need to knock on the doors because most doors will be open for visitors to walk in and out casually.
0: Sounds like very good travel. Sermon Serminaran, thanks so much for a peek into your beautiful country. Thank you. You can share what inspires you in your travels in the form of an original haiku poem. Here's a sample of some recent haiku we received from listeners from the radio section of ricksteves.com.
7: Tracy Lynn of Charlottesville, Virginia, writes us this about white nights of summer in the far north of Russia. St. Petersburg, June. Endless daylight glistens off endless golden domes. Chantal Rev from Jersey City, New Jersey, writes this haiku for us of a scene she observed in Japan. Neon Tokyo rain blurs footage of their blind date. Wave, kiss. Flirt, debate. And Patricia Castle from Waikoloa, Hawaii writes this about what she saw on the back roads of Ireland. Tufts of creamy wool caught on splintery fence rails far from Irish looms. Share your travel impressions with us in a haiku poem. There's a link for sending us yours in the radio section of ricksteves.com.
0: Next, we'll leave behind the quiet village scene and head back to the bustle of urban life. This time, it's the great city of St. Petersburg in Russia. We'll take your calls at 877-333-RICK, or you can share your thoughts with us anytime on our radio message board. You'll find it in the radio section at ricksteves.com. When I was on a cruise last summer in northern Europe, I jumped ship to spend some extra time in St. Petersburg, and I'm so glad I did. Founded by Tsar Peter the Great back in the 18th century, it's considered Russia's cultural capital, and it's clearly its most western-facing city. I think that might be why I find it so accessible for an American visitor. It does take a little extra effort to get there on your own. You'll need a visa, and you'll probably need some help deciphering the language and understanding some of the customs but I found it to be well worth the trouble. To learn why St. Petersburg has such an appeal, we're joined by two guests, Cameron Hewitt and Etelka Perina Beretz. Cameron co-authors some of my guidebooks, and Etelka is a tour guide from Hungary who is a student in St. Petersburg, and now she leads travelers around that city. Etelka and Cameron, thanks for joining us.
6: Thank you for having us.
0: Spasiba. Etelka, You were there as a student in the 1970s, and then you go back now, a generation later, basically. True. St. Petersburg must have changed a lot since then. How does it strike you as different today from when you were a student there in the
2: 70s? Believe or not, back in those years, the only thing we could eat, uh, potato with potato, bread with bread. But now, whenever I enter into a shop, I can get fruits. This is a highlight.
0: You can get fruits. (laughs) Fruits. Now, Cameron, in your estimate, is it worth the trouble for us to work St. Petersburg into a vacation given the headaches involved in getting a visa?
6: I would say the answer is a qualified yes. I think uh, for most people it's worthwhile. There is a lot of hassle involved though, and I think that's the trade off that American travelers have to, to deal with. The hassle mostly being the visa issue. Uh, it's one of the rare European destinations that Americans have to get a visa that you don't just get it on the fly at the border. You have to take some advanced measures and plan and several weeks a, ahead.
0: It costs a couple hundred dollars, does it? Once
6: you factor in right, uh, the visa charge and a service agency to help process it, figure at least $250 a person. So it's, it's sort of like you're paying a hefty admission charge, even just to enter the country of Russia.
0: Now, Cameron, when we're on this sort of nitty-gritty stuff, you need to get a visa. Talk just briefly about money, safety, water, language, all these sort of basic issues for a traveler.
6: Uh, logistically for Americans, if you're used to traveling in most of Europe, Eastern Europe or Western Europe, you're going to find there are a lot of differences once you get to Russia. St. Petersburg is the most, the westernmost. It's the most uh, European of all of the cities of Russia. But you still have some differences, as you alluded to. Uh, you really shouldn't drink the tap water. You have to get used to this uh, different currency. Some of the basics like ATMs are still the same, um, but there's just a few more hurdles. I'd say the biggest hurdle from my experiences as an American who doesn't speak Russian uh, there's a huge language barrier. Um, there's a
0: language barrier complicated by a uh, script barrier. There's also the script barrier, <laughs> right, yes. Because you uh, got the Cyrillic lettering, so even if it behooves you to learn that Cyrillic script. You
6: know, one of my pointers for anyone and any American going to Russia is take a few minutes a day for a week before you go, memorize the Cyrillic alphabet. It's really not that hard. The first time I went, I just made flashcards. About a third of the letters are the same as in English. About a third of the letters come from other uh, alphabets, so they might be kind of Greek letters, so there's something that looks like a Greek pi, and it's a Russian P. And then, confusingly, about a third of the letters look like an English letter, but it's a different sound.
0: Because when I look at the word restaurant when I was a kid, I always thought pectopah. Pectopah, right. And you know, there's a pectopah where they serve food. But then I... Because
6: <laughs> a Cyrillic P is an R and a, a Cyrillic C is an S, so... And,
0: and the funny thing is, if I just learned the script, the word is essentially the same. You can read the word restaurant in the, in the Russian if you knew the Cyrillic and not, you don't even need to know the language.
6: If you were suspicious, you might think they designed this alphabet just to confuse visiting Americans. However... It is so easy to decode it. Um, Like I said, the first time I went, I made flashcards every night. I'd go through them once, and in a week, I could slowly sound out Cyrillic words on the street.
0: And uh, when you talk about St. Petersburg, Italca, uh, if you know the Cyrillic, it'll help because you want to use the Metro. Talk about what is unique about the Metro, the subway system in St. Petersburg.
2: The public transportation is great, not only in St. Petersburg, but in Moscow and other uh, cities as well. Mm-hmm. And easy to use, especially in St. Petersburg, because uh, not only the Cyrillic letters, you can read it in the Latin letters as well. And what is really unique at the metro, once you get into the station, you feel some of the stations that you are in the living room of uh, the city. Like metro metrostop, this is my favorite one you go down and beautiful, beautiful statues uh, from the communist days. You feel like it's a, a palace for the a workers. palace, that's a right, palace because for the workers. of course,
0: in the communist days it was the dictatorship of the proletariat and it cost two cents, two pennies to take the metro and, and you get this beautiful art and these elegant chandeliers. It does feel like a palace for the workers and people read entire books just while on the escalators going down and yes. up into the subways because they're so deep. deep. These this are the longest escalators I've ever taken. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about St. Petersburg. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Tom's on the line in Seattle. Tom, thanks for your call.
8: Thank you. Uh, We're going to be in St. Petersburg as part of a cruise. We talked to the people of the cruise line, and they recommended just taking the ship's shore excursions Because the visas, to get the visas is very complicated, and the ships, I guess, tours already have a common visa that that you can use without going through the hassle of trying to get the Russian visa.
6: This is an excellent question, one a lot of people have, and it's complicated. There's a number of different answers to the question. The two basic options are getting a cruise shore excursion or getting your own visa. Uh, There's pros and cons to both. If you get the cruise ship shore excursion, it's true, you don't need an individual visa. The catch that they might not be advertising is that you have to stay with your escort or your tour guide the entire time that you're on land. So those excursions are designed to take advantage of the fact that you are not wanting to get a visa and to make more and more money out of you and take you only to their version of St. Petersburg. Now, the option of getting a visa is intriguing, but it is more complicated. Uh, Basically, figure about $250 a person. You'll actually have to mail your passport in uh, to the Russian embassy for a couple of weeks. The flip side to that is, Once you have that visa, you can walk off the ship and have the city by the tail. You can do whatever you want. You can go to any restaurants, shops, museums, and so forth on your own. People think, well, $250, I don't want to spend that to get my own visa. But keep in mind, you're in town for two days. That means if you want to get off the ship, anytime you want to get off the ship, you have to pay for an excursion. And Mm -hmm. that can add up to far, far more than $250. So it's probably going to actually save you money if you're a fairly independent traveler to do it on your own. There's a new option, which is
0: local tour guides that provide the same uh, visa-free service. There
6: is a third option. Uh, Local agencies, you can book them to do your own kind of private shore excursion. Sometimes they'll take care of the visa stuff for you, sort of like the cruise line, or sometimes you get your own visa and they'll meet you at the ship and show you around, and then it'll be less expensive because they don't have to deal with all the bureaucracy for you. And there's a lot of great resources online. Cruise Critic, for example, is one of many websites where people who've been to St. Petersburg have had a good experience with a guide, and they can give you information for that that sort of thing. And
0: I think when all the dust settles, that's the option I would vote for. Good. Very good. Thanks for your call. Okay. Thank you. Sally's calling in from Nokomis, Florida. Sally, thanks for your call.
9: Hello, Rick. I had an experience, a very good experience with a private guide, as you just described a few years ago, from a ship, but if we did go back to St. Petersburg, we would like to possibly try and do this on our own, but we would like some assistance, I guess, in finding out how to get from the, the cruise port into St. Petersburg.
0: Now, Sally, I was just, I can help you on this, because I was just there on the cruise ship, and it was scary, i got to mention. I, it took me a day to get used to things. You know, everybody left the cruise ship, and then I just walked off all alone. I'm in mean, this vast, um, what's it called, Cameron, the Marine? The Marine Facade Cruise Terminal. And it, it holds like six cruise ships at the same time, And and there was just a lady sitting at a desk arranging taxis. And I thought, well, I'm going to get ripped off here, but I'll just go for it because, you know, typically when you're in uh, this part of the world, they'll charge tourists a fortune for uh, some sort of a taxi service. And she had a government-regulated list of, of taxi services, and she made a call, and I made, I think I paid her, and it was reasonable. It was 20 euros or something, and I had my taxi, and he took me all the way downtown. I was very impressed by how well that works. So I think Russia is getting its act together in organizing these kind of things, and, and I, I like that.
9: Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for calling, and good luck next time you're in St. Petersburg. We're exploring Russia's former imperial capital, the great city of St. Petersburg with Cameron Hewitt and Atelka Parina Barrette right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Celeste is on the phone in Princeton, Indiana. Celeste, thanks for calling.
8: Hi. and a pleasure to be with you. Um, I had the pleasure of studying in St. Petersburg back in 1993, and I would encourage all of your travelers to perhaps try to explore uh, Russia and St. Petersburg as a tourist who arrives by plane or train. A cruise ship is great, but there's so much to do and experience in that city that you can't do in a day or two. And yeah, uh,
0: you're right. I just visited eight or nine cities by cruise ship in Northern Europe, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. But And for many cities, you know, one well-organized day, eh, it was really great. But St. Petersburg... I, I gave myself five days, and I wanted every one of those days. St. Petersburg is definitely worth flying into and, and taking more seriously than just jumping off the cruise ship.
6: That's or you can take the train. It's just a, a quick four-and-a-half-hour express train <laughs> from Helsinki, so there's lots of ways to go.
0: There certainly is. Thanks, Celeste, for your call. Thank you so much. Okay, bye now. Bye. Cameron, when you think of St. Petersburg, of course it was, first it was St. Petersburg, then it was Leningrad, and now it's St. Petersburg again. What's the connection with Peter?
6: The city was actually founded by Peter G- the Great, the great Russian czar, around the year 1700, 1703. And remember, Peter was this Russian czar who really wanted to modernize the Russian empire that he became the czar of. He actually traveled in Europe, in Western Europe, in Holland and England. Uh, they say he went undercover in the Amsterdam shipyard so he could really understand what, what life was like there. And he brought back all these ideas that he wanted to create the perfect European city, even though it was Russia and the cultures even then were extremely different. So basically, St. Petersburg was built on a swamp to Peter the Great's vision, imported uh, architects and uh, land planners and uh, artists from all over Europe, especially Italy and France. It's basically a a European city in the corner of Russia facing Europe. Uh, In some ways, it's the least Russian of European-Russian cities because it's designed as a European one.
0: What are the sites in St. Petersburg that relate directly to Peter the Great?
2: The horseman, uh, the bronze horseman. This is a, a very important horse statue because it was uh, dedicated to Peter and given by Catherine the Great. So Catherine the Great, a, a later czar, honored Peter by building this incredible
0: statue. Atelka, I'm impressed by how many buildings survive from the age of, of Peter the Great and Catherine the Great. What are some of the sites in St. Petersburg today we can see that date back to the 1700s?
2: Actually, some of the museums, which were built like the Hermitage. So the Hermitage is
0: a great palace, but now a great art gallery.
2: That's right, and one of the biggest in the world. Its collection is, uh, I would compare with the Louvre or with the British Museum, but for me, it's a number one. You
0: can think of the Louvre, and you can think (laughs) of the Prado, and you can think of the National Gallery in London but the Hermitage collection really is world-class and arguably the best of all the painting collections of Western art in the world.
2: That's it. One thing is the collection, and the other thing is the building itself, the Winter Palace, where the Tsars lived. And once you enter in the lobby and you see the staircase, your jaws drops. It's something uh, magical.
0: You can visit it as an art gallery, and you can visit it as a palace. Palace. It's two-in-one. That's true. And even if there was no art in there, it'd be one of the great sites in all of Europe because of how great the palace is. Now, part of this massive complex of palaces was actually the Winter Palace for the Romanovs, and part of it was a purpose-built art gallery. What's your take on the actual collection inside, Cameron? Uh,
6: the collection is really fantastic. There's a couple of Leonardo uh, oil paintings, which are very rare. There's only about twenty in existence. There's a lot of really interesting and really uh, one-of-a-kind kind of European masters to see. The second floor is that old master stuff. And then upstairs, there's a fantastic exhibit of modern European artwork. You've got uh, Picasso and Van Gogh and Gauguin and Renoir and Manet and anyone you can imagine. Uh, it's sort of like if you stack the Orsay on top of the Louvre and put it in a beautiful palace. As Atelka mentioned, it's arguably the best or one of the best uh, collections of European art. And this is a really interesting uh, point that's worth emphasizing. People go to this beautiful palace built by the Russian czars and Russia's showcase city. They think they're going to see Russian art. I don't think there's a single piece of no, Russian art. No
2: one. There's so no it, Russian
6: canvas in the Hermitage. Okay. if
0: you want Russian art, what
2: do you do? If I want uh, Russian art, I go to the Russian Museum, which is just 10 minutes walk. 10 and minutes, ten walk, walk, from minutes walk from the Hermitage. From the Hermitage, yes. And what is most not to see only the pictures, but the icons. It is so Russian.
0: So you can go chronologically through Russian art from the right. icons up until the end of communism, when That's freedom true. came back to Russia. It's 10 minutes walk from the Hermitage and... No crowds. No crowds. Compared to the Hermitage, which is amazing. I was just in both, and I'll tell you, everybody's clamoring for the Hermitage to see the paintings you can see all over Europe, really. I mean, great stuff, but you can see your Raphael's and Leonardo's elsewhere. When you go to the Russian Museum, that's what I want to see in Russia is great Russian art.
2: And this is where you get it.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves, and every week we take you to someplace interesting with local guides. And this week we are learning about St. Petersburg Itelka. Give us some tips on eating without speaking Russian while we're in St. Petersburg.
2: I uh, encourage you to try the local type of cafeterias. Uh, for example, Teremok. It's a very, very Russian place. So Teremok. T-E-R-E-M-O-K or something right, like yeah. that. Yeah. They give all kinds of Russian food. And once you come to the counterpoint and maybe you get what you want, maybe you get something, just say spasiba and enjoy your meal. And you
0: can order different things experimentally because everything's very, very cheap Cheap and you might experiment and find something you never knew about. That's true. Or
2: another stolle. Uh, s-t-o-l-l-e, S-T-O-L-L-E, stolle. You get all kinds of uh, pierogi filled with either meat or different kind of uh, fruit. And you come to the counter point, you get it and eat it and do your size. And they only
0: cook up as much as they're going to sell. It's all fresh. And, all fresh and And when they're and out, warm. they're out. My uh, frustration was I, I kept going late and they were sold and out uh, of their pies. Yeah. So, itaka, we've got the cafeteria yeah. and, the, and the famous chain is Terramuk We've got Stola, which is another sort of a chain restaurant That's where you right. get beautiful, fresh cakes, yes. both sweet and savory. That's right. What's a couple more and ideas? And what is
2: not really familiar uh, with the tourists and afraid to go in, I would recommend Talovaya. This is the real, real uh, challenge to go into a Russian Stalovaya. It's a kind of canteen. Usually they are in the basement. One of my favorite ones is next to the Kazan Cathedral. You go there, line up, grab a tray, And you see what is... uh, It's an adventure. It's an adventure, yes, what they sell. And this is the most inexpensive way to have a meal in St. Petersburg. Cameron, if you want to travel in St. Petersburg and get a dose of uh,
0: some of the communist history, the the revolution and so on, what would the highlights be?
6: There's several sort of historic sites tied to communism. For example, they still have the battleship Aurora. Uh, The cannon on this ship supposedly fired the day that uh, the Russian Revolution or the October Revolution started. Um, I think it's interesting to think about the layers of history in a place like St. Petersburg. I'm thinking about the churches, for example. Of course, during communism, a lot of the churches weren't allowed to be open as churches. Atheism was a state religion and so forth. So the churches that weren't destroyed were turned into other things.
0: Almost as an insult to those churches.
6: Right. They left these beautiful buildings standing, but they wanted to make sure they were something very undignified in a way. So, for example, the there's a grand church right on Nevsky Prospect. It's called the, the Cathedral of Our Lady of Kazan. It was the Museum of Atheism during communism. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting, I was uh, with a local friend in St. Petersburg, and he took me to this beautiful ornate church that's still being renovated. It's called the Opina Pustin Church. Uh, he told me that it used to be a hockey rink, a hockey arena during communism, and that when they were doing the restoration work, they literally found a hockey puck embedded deeply in the wall where somebody had knocked it into the plaster and no one bothered to dig it out.
0: There is so much that you can learn and be inspired by and and so thankful that you took the trouble to find a way to get to St. Petersburg, Russia's window on the West. We've been joined by Itelka Parina Beretz and Cameron Hewitt to talk about St. Petersburg. Itelka, when we visit St. Petersburg, what's something we should be sure to appreciate?
2: Sure, you should appreciate uh, the Second World War monument, the Sage Monument, because uh, even today people remember Leningrad thousands and thousands of people died in the siege of Leningrad. 900 days' siege. Can you imagine? 900 900 days. days. And every family has got someone who died. With all
0: this passion for getting beyond the Soviet Union and all that communism, uh, the one area where you find St. Petersburg referred to as Leningrad, the old communist name, is whenever you've got something dealing with the siege out of respect to the heroic people that stood up against Hitler during that horrific time when Leningrad survived the Nazi determination to wipe it off the face of the map.
2: And just to add one little story I had on the metro some years ago, uh, there was a kind of uh, not really, very nice talk on the metro, and an old lady stood up and told, Hey, we Leningradzi. It means, hey, you from Leningrad, you shouldn't behave like that. And believe it or not, there was science.
0: Have some self-respect. You That's are right. citizens of Leningrad. The heroic city. The heroic Even, city. Yeah. Wow. St. Petersburg. So much to see, so much to learn about, so much to be inspired by. Cameron Hewitt, Atelka, Perina Barats. Spasiba.
2: Spasiba. Thank you, Rick. Poshalista.
8: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Thanks to Gretchen Strong for reading today's Travel Haiku. You can listen again to each week's show and look up information about our guests in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And be sure to join us again next week for more Travel
0: with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on
4: escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries, all designed to make Europe's rich history and great
0: art come to life. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.